so we can begin. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great mercy and kindness to your people, O God. Lord, you are far better to us than we deserve. You have blessed us beyond measure, first and foremost in Jesus Christ, and also in blessing us with uh, the church and your word, O God. So help us, Lord, by the aid of your Holy Spirit to learn of your people, regardless of where they may be located, God. Lord, help us, God, to do these things for the glory of your great name. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. All right, so if you look like you saw on the outside of the door, this quarter was supposed is actually two different core seminars. It was unity and diversity for the first seven weeks, and then the last six weeks are, are um, <clears throat> global Christian history. So the, um, what that is is that we're going to talk a bit about how the gospel has spread in other parts of the world, not just the United States of America. So the Bible says and declares that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that will be worshiping the Lamb for the glory of God. And so, and also the Lord has given us the church a mandate to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. So, that being the case, there will be Christians throughout the entire world. Amen? So our goal in the next six weeks is just to talk a bit about Christianity in other nations, how it historically has, you know, progressed or regressed or whatnot. So America is not the center of the universe. Amen? We just happen to be, we just happen to be in the United States. So it's good for us to know Christian history for a couple different reasons. Uh, one, I'm sorry, if, you have, if you're using translation, can you raise your hand just so we can know? Jose, have them raise their hand so they can know that it's uh, working. Is it good? We're good? Okay, thank you. I'm sorry. I should have asked that earlier. So it's good for us to know um, Christian history for a number of different reasons, and one of those reasons being is, is that we, should, we, get, we were blessed to see how the Lord has moved in different places and at different times, first of all. Secondly, the, um, the Holy Spirit is not exclusive to us, right? There have been other people in other times and other places whom God has blessed mightily, and we can learn from those people quite a bit about how to handle controversy, about how, to, how the gospel spreads in different contexts, and all of those things are helpful and beneficial to us as the people of God. Amen? So it kind of dovetails into our previous um, course seminar about unity and diversity. So it's good to know how God has moved in other places in different times and in different parts of the world. So it's good for us to know these things. So often when we teach the history of Christianity, we look at a stream of history that um, led to where we are today, both theologically and geographically. So, um, which means for this church, we usually, when we talk about Christian history, we usually focus on the Baptist tradition and how it moved from like Western Europe to the United States. But of course, like I said, God has done so much more than that over the last 2,000 years than just spread the church to the United States. He's Christianity is going global, right? 
So in this course seminar over the next six weeks, that's what we'll be exploring Christian history outside of that particular stream. So we'll talk a bit about not just Baptists, Southern Baptists. We'll talk a bit about Presbyterians and Pentecostals and a bunch of different streams of Congregationalists, a bunch of different streams of Christianity and how they affected different parts of the world. Okay, so this morning we'll begin with the history of Brazil, Christianity in Brazil. So the um, Atlas of World Christianity estimates that the number of Pentecostal Christians across South America grew over 500 percent between 1960 to 1980, 1960 to 1980. And that growth has slowed down a bit in the last, um, you know, in the 2000s, it slowed down. The rate of growth has slowed down a bit. But it has changed forever the religious landscape of the entire continent of South America, right? And so the reason, one of the reasons um, why we focus on Brazil is because Brazil is a very large country, right? So um, it, uh, the Atlas of World Christianity reported that South America has the strongest Christi- Christian community in the entire world. Now, obviously, that's their opinion. But nevertheless, it's pretty significant that they would say something like that, um, So it's worth our time in this global Christianity class to understand the nature of, you know, Christianity in a place like this in South America. And so, again, there's several reasons for us to do that. First is because Brazil is South America's largest nation, right? And there's a very interesting story about the history of Christianity in Brazil and how it spread, okay? Um... We should know what God has done in the world to fulfill his promise that, every, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship him. And so Brazil is very, has a very interesting story in that. So um, just for a little bit of background, like I, like I mentioned earlier, Brazil is the largest country in South America. It's over 200 million people, 200 million image bearers in Brazil. That would make Brazil the fifth largest country in the world. So Brazil, by population, is the fifth largest country in the world. It's just a bit smaller than Indonesia and the United States, right? So for the last few decades, the capital of Brazil has been Brasilia. It's in the central west. It's in the central western part of the country. And two major cities in Brazil, I'm sure you heard of them, are Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. But Brasilia is actually the capital, right? So... In regards to the early origins of Christianity, that's Roman numeral number two on your handout if you're following along. Um, Brazil has had a Christian history ever since a Portuguese naval commander, Pedro Alvarez, became the first Westerner to set eyes on Brazil in the 1500s, in in the year 1500, in the year 1500. So Alvarez, he staked his country, he staked a claim to Brazil um, on behalf of the Portuguese Empire um, on the coastland when he landed there. And the first official act that, the, that those Portuguese settlers did, they landed at a place called the Isle of, they named it the Isle of the Holy Cross. They named it the Isle of the Holy Cross, and then they celebrated Mass. So that was the first official act that they did there. And then, so for the next 400 years, First as a part of Portugal, 
And then as an independent empire, Brazil would be mostly Roman Catholic. So the biggest, the biggest um, religious group through over those 400 years, the first 400 years, would be Roman Catholicism. So for centuries, this, they had a really tight relationship with the government of Brazil, and they discouraged any kind of Protestant or any kind of non-Catholic initiatives to spread the gospel there, right? So of course, that doesn't mean that there was no um, Protestant presence in Brazil during those years. And because in, 19, in 1555, when the French arrived, the French arrived in Rio de Janeiro, and they established to establish a small French colony there. Um, they were led by a man who was a Roman Catholic and an admiral in the French Navy. And, but he was sympathetic to Protestant leanings in France. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Hagenots. They are French Calvinists. They would be French Calvinists. And they were soon, so, the, so this group, this, this Roman Catholic uh, admiral, he sent, there were two pastors that were sent to Brazil by John Calvin himself, so history tells us. And they, they built a fort named Gaspard de Caligny, and the colony quickly became a refuge for many other um, French Calvinists who were trying to escape persecution, and they came to Brazil. And so there was a colony set up there, and then eventually, by the time we get to 1558, the uh, Portuguese attacked this fort and destroyed them for political reasons. And most of the people there, most of the residents of, of this fort were either killed or returned back to Europe. So, but that's significant because this group of people, what they did was they wrote the first Protestant document in all of the Americas, even before the United States. And it was called the uh, Guanabara Confession of Faith. So this would have been the first Protestant Confession of Faith that was written on um, the soil of the Americas. Yes, that was in Brazil. So Brazil has, this, has a very rich, interesting history when it comes to, um, you know, the Christian faith. Okay, so while, so this is going on for the first 400 years, but it's mostly Roman Catholic influence as very heavily um, over Brazil. And then so Protestant influence in Brazil was minimal, very, very minimal. Um, but we shouldn't conclude that the country immediately became Roman Catholic, right? So we shouldn't think that um, just because Roman Catholicism like sunk in the nation, it's not identical to the Roman Catholicism that you would understand from Europe. Right. So as one historian put it like this, he says, Brazil is considered the largest Roman Catholic country in the entire world. But Brazil is primarily a spiritist country, not a Catholic country. So in the words of one pre uh, Presbyterian pastor there in Brazil, they say, if you ask people, most people in Brazil, they will tell you that they're Catholic. 
but when you start to analyze, they're actually what he calls spiritists. So they practice a combination of different folk religions that came over from different, you know, some of them from um, South America, some were brought in from um, slaves, African slaves, and they mixed us all together with various, with this form of Roman Catholicism. So according to the, this particular Presbyterian pastor, he's saying, that's one thing when you say, if you ask them and you say, hey, they're going to tell you that they're Roman Catholic, but when you start to live with them and when they start to, you see this syncretism, kind of like the United States, <laughs> kind of like us. We say, we all say, we say we Baptist and then whatever. I'm going to leave that one alone. <laughs> I'm moving on. All right, look, so the empire and the republic, all this began to change as Brazil entered the 19th century. So wait, before I go along, I just want to warn you, this is going to be a little more academic than normal, but it's going to be good because we'll see how the Lord has moved in this, in this nation, all right? So we need, to get, we need to not be siloed in our understanding of how God moves, right? He doesn't move the same way in every nation, right? What the way he does things in the United States may be different than the way he does them in Brazil, but the end goal is that people will be saved, all right? So we need to understand what that looks like. All right, so uh, the, the changes, <clears throat> the stranglehold that Roman Catholicism had on Brazil started to change as, the, as we enter into the, eight, the 19th century. In 1808, the Portuguese royal court, court escaped to Brazil. So the royal family of Portuguese left uh, Portugal because of Napoleon Bonaparte. They were escaping him, and they, because they were, they come to Brazil, and they become better acquainted with the people, they get to know the people, and they begin to see things from, a, from a, the perspective of the Brazilian people. So once the court, the royal family returned to Portugal, and Pedro I of Portugal takes over Portugal again, Brazil receives their independence from Portugal, and they start the empire of Brazil in 1822, okay? So um, this is significant because of what happens here when this happens is they, they go from being a monarchy or a colony to now they adopt a constitution for the first time. And in that constitution, that, con that constitution, it, in it is the, the policy of freedom of religion. So it allowed for the first time freedom of religion in a country which allowed for Protestants then to start evangelizing legally, <laughs> right? So now other faiths are able to express their um, beliefs publicly, but non-Catholic places of worship could not have the appearance of a church. So they could build, like you could have a church building, you just couldn't, it couldn't look like a church, you couldn't have a steeple outside, you couldn't have church on a building outside but you could meet for the first time publicly, legally. So in 1841, so that was Pedro I, that was under Pedro I. Pedro II, Pedro's son, once he's crowned emperor of Portugal, what he does, and this is significant, in 1849, he bans the slave trade. He bans Israel from sending um, slaves to Brazil, right? 
And so what that starts to do then is now for labor, they have to start hiring European, or they start hiring European immigrants. And so obviously those immigrants, many of them are Protestant immigrants at this point, right? And they begin to replace slaves as laborers. They begin to replace African slaves as laborers. And so this change, what it does, it changes the fabric, the religious fabric of the, of the nation at that point. And then this is where Protestantism starts to grow in Brazil at this point, right? And that's the biggest contributor to that would be the Anglicans in the beginning, in the beginning of the Protestant growth in Brazil is the Anglicans. So, and so if you're following along on a handout, that would be, yeah, Roman numeral number three. Roman numeral number three. So the European Protestants who started to come over first would be the Anglicans in 1819, the Church of St. George and the Church of uh, St. Baptist, uh, John the Baptist were built in Rio de Janeiro. So these, according to Brazilian history, are the first Protestant church buildings that were built in Brazil. Now, this was five years before this new constitution was put into place, but like, so when we remember, history is never as clean as we like it to be. So when we give you dates, sometimes that's probably a lot more was going on behind the scenes. But these are the dates that we can see is, I'm sure, I'm more than certain there was Protestantism growing in the nation prior to this, but this is what we see. A once we see a building getting, like they didn't just go from one day, no no Anglicans to a church, right? So nevertheless, so um, for the first time, like, like I say, that foreigners were free to worship whatever religion they brought with them. So the, the Anglicans were the first group. However, um, Brazilians, Brazilians were not allowed to attend this church. So native Brazilians, it was illegal for native Brazilians to attend these churches. Only European settlers when they would come over, they allowed them to build a church, but you and the Dutch and the English and the who you go worship Jesus in your Protestant church, but lead the Brazilians out of it was the government position. So beginning in 1836, um, Anglican chaplains began assisting English sailors in Rio de Janeiro, right? And then this is when um, evangelistic works slowly begins to spread beyond just the English. When I say English, I don't mean the language, I mean the English, right? So in 1890, the Anglican Episcopalian Church of Brazil is officially founded. Soon there were evangelistic works started in a number of different cities throughout the Rio Grande. This, the Rio Grande de Sol, that's the southernmost state in Brazil, the southernmost province, is just above modern day Uruguay and not far down the coast from Rio de Janeiro. And so in the 19th century, it was the Anglicans who did the most to spread, to expand Protestantism in Brazil, right? And then, so then you also have the history, we also look at the history of the Lutherans in Brazil. So the Anglicans, like the Anglicans, the Lutherans got their start through um, trade, 
not necessarily missionary activity. So like what we just talked about, the Anglicans that came over to Brazil weren't coming there to do missionary work. They were coming there, it was economics. What is the reason? They were coming there to work and they just brought their religion rhythm. And so evangelism and missionary work wasn't their main aim, it was putting food on the table, right? And so the same thing for the Lutherans. They, the, it wasn't missionary activity. The first German settlers um, immigrated to Brazil as farmers and small businessmen in 1824. Um, so they, when they came, they brought a pastor with them. Okay, so the pastor of their first church was the first Lutheran minister in Brazil, Frederick uh, Sauerbrunn, and other settlers, all other German settlers from other times in Germany brought pastors with them, and soon a Lutheran synod was established in the country. So, however, like I say, these settlers did not come to do evangelistic work, so the Lutheran services were mainly performed in German. They were almost exclusively performed in German, and that pattern held for centuries. So the Lutherans, along with the early Anglicans, they reflect this broad pattern of Christian history of missed opportunities. So if you are a believer and you move to a place where you don't believe the gospel is there at all, you have an opportunity to preach the gospel. You have an opportunity to spread the word of the gospel to a group of people that don't seem to know him at all, right? And so whether it's wherever you go, wherever that is, it was a missed opportunity because they largely kept their Christianity to themselves. They should not, that should not have been the case. If, if you, when you and I go to a place, you should be taking your Christianity with you. Amen? So if 20 of us move to wherever, and it doesn't seem like it's a church there, when we leave, it should be a bunch of churches there. Because we should have been talking to our co-workers, our neighbors, and everybody around us about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this was a missed opportunity for these people because they, they failed to do that. And the proof of the fact is, is that they left the services in German. So the Brazilian people would never have been able to understand it. So it was a missed opportunity. So they didn't seize on these opportunities. Um, just us going to a place is not enough. Our presence there is not enough. We need to actually be witnessing to people wherever we go. Amen, church? So at least for the Lutherans, the story begins to change in the 1900s. That's when American Lutherans begin to do missionary work activity in the same place, Rio Grande de Sol. So this is the same place where the Anglicans had already established a presence. And so these missionaries extended their ministry to the Brazilians and the Lutheran church began to grow rapidly. So it was comprised. So at, in the 1900s, um, when, they, when the uh, American Lutherans go, there are not very many there at all. Just non, okay, so there are Lutherans there, but they're not Brazilians, right? So by the time we get to 1930, it's over 226,000 native Lutherans who are baptized members of the Lutheran church, according to their records. And so just like the United States, the Lutheran church in Brazil is represented by two major bodies, the East ELCA, 
which is the Evangelical Church of Lutheran Confession in Brazil, and the, Evan and the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Brazil is linked more theologically to what we would know as the Missouri Synod, right? So then there's also, um, yeah, the ECLA. So the, evangel the Evangelical Church of Lutheran Confession is similar to our ECLA in the United States, whereas the other one would be more conservative, like the Missouri Synod in the United States. That makes sense to you? All right. So then the other group would be the Congregationalists. Uh, con the other group of con Protestants would be the Congregationalists. So this pr group, Austin, we forget about this group in the United States, the Congregationalists. We don't talk about them because their numbers are really small here in the U.S., but they played a very important role. Yes, sir? And they're uh, extremely different. Yes, they are. I'm, gonna, I I'm actually going to talk about that, so yes. So the Congregationalists used to have a pretty decent-sized presence in the United States, but that's not the case anymore, so we typically forget about them. Um, um, they play, but they did play an important role in the development of Christianity in Brazil. Um, so what's significant in what they did when they arrived is, is that they had a Congregationalist missionary named Robert Reed Kiley and his wife, Sarah. They arrived in Rio de Janeiro in 1855. And they, so they were Protestants, or I'm sorry, they were Presbyterians, they were Presbyterians, and they became, they came convinced of the of congregational church polity, right? So they were Presbyterians, they didn't, but they didn't agree with Presbyterian church government, right? That makes sense to you? They believed in congregationalist church government. So, so what they did was, why this was profound was because... Two things. One, they contributed to, they had a pretty decent influence with the government there and contributed to how some of the laws were written there. And he, because um, Robert Cayley becomes, he became friends with Emperor Pedro II. And he helped the government to draft legislation to increase religious freedom in the nation, right? So if you remember, like we talked about earlier, initially Europeans were, allowed to build churches and worship, but Brazilians weren't allowed to worship with them. So because of this man's effort, what that was done away with, and now they were allowed to together worship together with Brazilians and Europeans and spread the gospel. So at least legally anyway, legally. So he advocated for, one of the things he advocated for was separation of church and state. So by the time the emperor was this so the Emperor of Brazil was disposed and they became a republic. This new constitution was, was written with separation of church and state in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the constitution. So that's important because typically with, in Roman Catholic nations, Roman Catholicism is usually the official state religion, right? So why that's important is because you have a lot of nations where if you're born there, they baptize you as a child, and you're automatically a member of the church, right? No, that's not biblical at all, right? But for a person that grew up in these nations, it would be very difficult for you to convince them that, no, you're not, right? So that all of these things matter, right? So the second major contribution that this man, Kylie, made to Brazilian Christianity was 
he helped to establish the church as Brazilian, right? Forming a self-sufficient, forming self-sufficient indigenous churches. So, and this is directly connected to his understanding of church government, right? So, as a congregationalist or a Baptist, our understanding of church government is that local churches are autonomous, right? It's not a hierarchy of church government. So what that means is, that's going to affect the way we do theology and who are, who's the next pastor, right? So what should be happening, we believe, as Baptists is, is that we should be discipling the next generation of pastors and the next men who become deacons and pastors should be coming from our congregation, right? So if you go and do missions with that mindset, what you're going to do is you're going to go there, you're going to plant a church, you're going to disciple, and you're going to be looking for elders in that church, and that church is going to be filled with indigenous leadership. However, if you have a different kind of church government and a different kind of church polity, and if you're from, I don't know, Denmark, and you go to Brazil, and you need a new pastor, you pick up the phone, you call Denmark, and you send another pastor. You see that? And so, this is, how, this is why your theology matters. This is why your theology matters, okay? We sent missionaries to Indonesia. The plan is to make indigenous local men who will eventually be elders of that church there and then replicate that over and over and over and over and over and over again and not export our American, I don't want to say that, <laughs> but it needs to be, first of all, let's just take America out of it. We have a duty to disciple the next generation of Christians. We're duty bound to do that, okay? So second, it is not smart at all for you to um, voluntarily submit to pastoral leadership if you do not know those men. That's not wise at all. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we, let's say, God forbid, all four of us get hit by a bus tomorrow, right? And y'all, y'all need a new pastor, right? And somebody comes up with the bright idea to start a pastoral search committee. And you start taking resumes from people uh, across the nation. And they come here, you know what they're going to do? They're going to have a briefcase with the best 10 sermons in it, right? And they're going to preach like nobody's business. And you're going to hear two sermons, and you're like, that's the best preacher I ever heard, right? And you know nothing about the man's life. You know nothing about anything about him other than he preached a couple sermons that he probably rewrote 100 times, okay? And then you hire them, and then you just, it's like shooting craps. You get whatever you get, all right? But that's not the way that it should be going. We should be raising up elders and pastors among us, from men among us, so that should anything happen, one of the pastors fall, one of the pastors die, the pastors move on. There are capable, qualified men from among us 
who you know their lifestyle that you should voluntarily submit to because if you look at the qualifications of a pastor in First um, Timothy and Titus, First Timothy, Second Timothy and Titus, most of those qualifications are ethical. That makes sense to you? It's apt to teach, but everything else is how does he live? How does he run his household? How does he treat his wife? How does he interact with his children? How does he treat the people around? How does he treat the other brothers and sisters? You cannot, you don't get to see that by inviting somebody from, by picking up the phone and calling Southern and having them send somebody to fill the pulpit. You have no idea what this man is gonna do or say, right? So anyways, sorry, that's my rant. I'm not apologizing, I'm just ranting. Listen, this is why this is significant, because this man, although he had Presbyterian theology, his understanding of church government was congregationalist. So what that did was that made the church in Brazil, the leadership of the church in Brazil, Brazilian. That make sense to you? Yes, ma'am, you got a question. I was wondering what would be the right thing to do in that case? What do you mean? Specifically here? Sure, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> specifically here, I pray to God that all four of us don't hit, get hit by a bus at the same time. Okay, but so we have men here who are capable, right? And I, and I, I don't want to speak too rashly, but Doug Koch was an elder one time. I, don't, I have no idea if he would be willing to do that again. I doubt it. his wife is looking at me like, don't you do that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but you have men here who are capable of leading you. You know, we just, we just uh, Jose was a pastor intern. You know, I don't, you'd have to determine if you're ready to have him, if you're ready to submit to him as an elder. You know, um, yeah, he will. And, but our job as elders, what we are constantly doing is looking for the next group of men who could be deacon and elder so we can bring them along. So God forbid, should that happen, there would be people waiting in the wings. You had a question? Oh, I'm sorry. Her original question was, what should, what should we do here at First Baptist if God forbid all four of us died at the same time? <laughs> yes, sir. This is a Southern Baptist congregation, right? Yes, it is. Is that a Southern Baptist doctrine, or is this local, your local doctrine as far as uh, selecting someone within the church? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not quite following the question. If all four of you were to be on the same bus. Okay. <laughs> right, right, right. And then you're saying that someone else within this congregation so ideally, in an ideal situation, yes, somebody from this congregation would be the next pastor, ideal. Is that Southern Baptist doctrine? Is that just your local church? That's our local church understanding. Now, um, I don't know that, let me think, the 1689 confession 
doesn't necessarily speak to that kind of situation. About sh- First of all, all four of us are not going to be on the bus at the same time. All right? <laughs> we try to, no, no, we, no, this is serious. No, like we, we, we intentionally try not to travel together for those kind of situations, right? Because those things could happen. If all four of us are on a plane, the plane could go down. So we intentionally try not to do those types of things and travel all together at the same time for this very situation. Pastor Vladimir. Yeah, I think uh, the Bible said that we have to affirm this because uh, that was the mission of the Titus and Timothy. That's right. Rise a new man from local church. From among you, yeah. To appoint elders from among you. Local church here or Southern Baptist or 1689. So what would probably happen in practically is is that we have association with other churches we would call somebody and say help help us fill the pulpit until we could get the proper man in place in practically speaking that makes sense to you yes ma'am i'm just wondering if what he means is is that a general baptist i don't know we're each autonomous as far as i know sure so we can make that decision as a church body, as well as someone, another church can call somebody from Tennessee that they've never met. Yeah, they could do that. Each individual church, I don't think the Southern Baptist has a set in writing. Practice. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know that, but I just know what we do here is we have the, we're of the conviction, the pastoral team here is of the conviction that we should be raising up men internally, right? And so that's our conviction. I, I can't really speak to what other, what every other Southern, ba- first of all, <laughs> trying to figure out what all Southern Baptists believe is like nailing jello to the wall, right? Because you go to 10 different Southern Baptist churches, you might get 10 different answers. So I'm not going to even try. It's a great question. I don't think I can answer it. Does that make sense to you? I would say so. <laughs> all right. Um, where were we? I think this church should decide what they want to do. Yes. Right. So we, we are, we, okay, so we kind of got off topic, but you have to voluntarily submit to your elders, right? You're responsible for voluntarily submitting to your elders, first of all. Secondly, the qualifications of every elder can only be seen by a church congregation. You understand? Those qualify, you can't determine if, it's like there's no way for you to determine if me or Pastor Vladimir meet those qualifications unless you live around us. Yes. That makes sense to you? Yes. So that's the second thing. And then um, the third thing is, so you quite often will hear people talk about they've been called I'm using it in my air quotes right now. They've been called to pastor. So I, we understand that to mean this. Internally, you have an internal call and a desire to lead the people of God. But there's also an external calling that the church will affirm. Right? So if a man just stands up and says, hey, I want to be a pastor, everybody else should be like, that's great. Sit down. We'll find out if that's true. Right? 
We don't, any, listen, the, the, the authority of the church on the earth is far greater than we all realize, right? Matthew 18, where the, the Bible verse that people like criminally take uh, out of context, where it talks about two, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm in the midst. If you read that entire passage, it's talking about church discipline, but it's also talking about the authority of the church to bind and loose membership. The church has the authority to determine who is, of, who is in the church, who's out of the church, and who leads the church. Every local congregation has that authority to do that. Now, I know my Presbyterian brothers are going to disagree with us on this. I just respectfully disagree with them on this. Right? That I don't see, we don't see in the scriptures where you can, from on high, send a man from another place and have these people who don't know him submit to him as a leader. I just don't, I just agree, don't agree that that's sound interpretation of scripture when it comes to church government. And neither do the, obviously, because I'm a Southern Baptist church, obviously I don't believe that. So, but the, but the, the pastors, none of the pastors believe that that's biblical either. Local church autonomy is. Anyways, long story short, um, the, did I answer your question? Did anybody else got any more comments on this subject? No? All right. So, we're, okay, so Kylie, he was a Presbyterian with congregationist understanding and beliefs, and he made, so his contribution to Brazilian Christianity was to make it Brazilian. So he did not go in saying, I'm going to make this church Brazilian. He was just like, no, I'm going to have what he thought was biblical church polity, and it just because that demands that you raise up men from inside the congregation. Does that make sense to you? No? Okay. Hopefully it will later. So he, done, he did a lot of various things that helped this um, to Brazilian Christianity to spread, and um, this church that he... So, okay, so he is responsible, uh, Kylie is responsible for writing psalms and hymns, a Brazilian hymnal, right? And it became very influential among the Protestant mission groups in Brazil. He founded the Fluminense Evangelical Church. And as far as we can tell, the first baptism of a Brazilian believer took place in July 11th. 1858 through this through these through this couple's work right and then after he was baptized 14 or 13 other members were baptized so there was a church started with 14 members from this group in 1858 and then 10 years later the church had reached 360 members most of whom were native brazilians and this fluminese evangelical church remains in brazil worshiping the Lord today. It's the, it is the oldest Portuguese-speaking church in the nation of Brazil to this day. So there are three different uh, congregational denominations in Brazil, and all three of them stem from this man Kylie's work there in Brazil. So then there are two other groups that we want to talk about real quick, is the Presbyterians and the Baptists, right? So in 1859, the first missionary was sent 
the first uh, pr uh, Presbyterian missionary was sent. His name was Ashbel Green Simiton. And by the, by, so he was sent in 1859, and by 1862, the Presbyterian Church in uh, Rio de Janeiro was founded, followed by the planting of several other Presbyterian churches nearby in Sao Paulo and elsewhere in the nation. And one of the Presbyterian pastors, Jose Manuel, he had been the first Roman Catholic priest in Sao Paulo to be converted and ordained as a minister in 18, and ordained as a Presbyterian minister in 1865. So this is somewhat surprising given the late date he was, that he was the first Brazilian ordained as, an event, uh, as a Presbyterian pastor in Brazil. And one of the significant contributions that the Presbyterians made in the religious history of the Christian history in Brazil was that they organized a school, a seminary there. Um, it's called the McKenzie University in uh, Sao Paulo. And it's one of Brazil's leading universities even today. And so um, for a while, though, for a time, to Cedric's point, the faculty slid, the whole school slid into liberalism, right? And um, like many other academic institutions and Presbyterian colleges and seminaries slid into liberalism. They started out as Presbyterian institutions and then eventually slid into liberal understanding of the authority of scripture and the sufficiency of scripture, among other things. So then we also have the Baptists, the Baptists. The last group, they kind of came later in, 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 in turn on the timeline, right? And so um, you have to go all the way to the 20th century. They weren't particularly influential in the 1800s. It's not until the 1900s that they become influential. And so Baptists first came to Brazil as Confederates were fleeing the United States at the end of the American Civil War. So they came to Brazil and they petitioned the Southern Baptist Convention to send missionaries. So they had very little influence on Baptist work in Brazil up until that time. So they, they would stay there and then uh, you fast forward to 1881, they founded a, a uh, Baptist church in 1882 alongside a man named Antonio de Albuquerque. He's another Roman Catholic convert priest. And by 1888, there were eight Baptist churches in six different cities in Brazil with a total of 212 members, right? So that's 1888. So 10 years later, that would only increase to about 2,000, a little over 2,000 people. So the largest of these, uh, so I'm sorry, there are today, today in Brazil, there are nine different Baptist conventions, and the largest Baptist convention was founded in 1907, and it was actually a result of the uh, International IMB, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. So the missionary activity coincides with a very tumultuous time in Brazilian in the history of the political history of Brazil. In 1889, there was a military coup that got rid of the emperor, and this led to a constitutional uh, democracy in Brazil that saw a, a numerous revolts over the years. And then in 1930, the military seized control of the country, 
Congress was closed and political parties were abolished. So you should be asking the question, what happened to Christianity during all of this, you know, government upheaval, right? It grew. It grew because the word of God will never be stopped, right? So in 1903, there were about 88,000 members of Protestant Brazilian churches, whether they be Baptists or Congregationalists or Presbyterians, right? And by 1916, the number had doubled, right? This is not count. This is just, these are indigenous Brazilians that, that, that are being counted in this number. And by 1935, that number had grew to 1.5 million, right? 1.5 million. So during this time, the main evangelical denominations, uh, nearly all of which were planted by missionaries, had transitioned to Brazilian leadership by this time, right? So this happened peacefully without a break in fellowship with the foreign denominations that gave them their start. That makes sense to you? Okay. So during this time, the foreign missionaries who came to Brazil adopted the practice of baptizing anyone who was converted from Roman Catholicism because that's what they should have done because you're supposed to get baptized upon profession of faith, not as a baby. Amen. All right. This was significant from a perspective of those individuals because they were making a clean break from their religious past. And so um, it was significant for Protestantism in general because it made a, it was making a clear line of demarcation, clear mind, a line of demarcation between those who were following Roman Catholicism versus those who were trying to believe, or under, I'm sorry, who were believing the gospel versus those who just had this veneer of Roman Catholicism. That makes sense to you? Am I making sense? So if you're born in a nation with a state church, guess what you automatically are? Whatever that is, right? And if somebody comes and tell you, you're not a, you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, what are you going to do? You're going to whip out your state-issued baptism certificate, <laughs> right? So this is significant for a person to stand up and say, to be baptized is a significant thing culturally, right? And so... The uh, Protestants in Brazil tended to move. I'm not saying this as this is a good thing. I'm just saying it as a matter of fact. Protestants in Brazil tended to move away from society, isolate themselves, and they created this sharp distinction between the Christian community and the surrounding culture. And that, <clears throat> that, that move largely paralleled with the rise of fundamentalism in the United States, right? So though they were fundamentalists in the United States, so the fundamentalism in the United States was a response to theological liberalism and modernism, but in Brazil it was a response to Roman Catholicism. That makes sense to you? So, <clears throat> so that basically summarizes the movements of Christianity up until World War II. I'm gonna get through this pretty quick. Um, which marks a so World War II marks this rich, significant turning point in. Brazilian religious history. So post-World War II Brazil remained, so Brazil remained neutral at the beginning of the war until it was attacked by German and Italian submarines and then it decided to join World War II on the side of the Allies and eventually sent 
um, soldiers and airmen to fight on the Italian front. So politically, World War II ended the shift to a d democratic government. And so <clears throat> Brazil, the Bra it, 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 um, it ended with a shift, I'm sorry, it ended with a shift to uh, democratic government at the end of World War II. And that lasted up until 1964. That lasted until 1964. And so at first, the Brazilian economy was booming under the reforms imposed by the government, by the military. But in the 70s, the economy, the economy stagnated. Some were deported uh, or killed for political reasons and censorship was imposed on the nation. And in 1985, the country shifted back to civilian rule with uh, 1989 marking the first time in recent years that a president was elected by popular vote. So, and many of us know if you watch the news over the last few years, Brazil has a very uh, erratic, I should say, let me say it like this, the Brazilian people are very passionate about their politics. How about that? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Um, so, the point isn't politics, but what happened during this time is, is that uh, Christianity just grew. It grew. Evangelicals in 1940 were only about 2.6% of the Brazilian population. By 1950, they reached 3.4%, and from there, they continued to increase up until it was 66 .6 in 1980, then in 9% in 1991, 15.4% in 2000, 22% in 2010. This is according to the Brazilian Institute of Geography and Statistics and Census Data. So in the 1990s, Pentecostalism, Pentecostalism was the fastest growing sect of Protestantism and that growth came primarily from Baptists. So since then, um, so, okay, I, I just want to talk about this real quick. So when we say Pentecostals, right, most of us don't mean the denomination. That makes sense to you? Most of us, that I'm saying like lay people, generally speaking, when they say Pentecostals, they don't, you, do you think the Pentecostal denomination when you say Pentecostals? You do? Okay. Very many of us don't, right? Generally speaking, what we think is TBN, P, uh, Trinity Broadcast Network, Prosperity Gospel, like these different um, strength. Okay, so you don't necessarily have to be a Pentecostal to believe in, to be a continuationist, to believe that the spirit is still doing things, right? Because there are people who are Baptists who I don't think is Baptist theology, I don't think it's sound, but nevertheless, they hold to things, they have a mishmash of theology when it comes to the work of the spirit. That makes sense to you? Yes. Yeah, so the, a lot of the people that I, I've talked to over the years in this church is that's what's happening. You, you, what you mean is somebody who's charismatic. 
you don't necessarily mean somebody who's of the Pentecostal denomination. That makes sense to you? Hopefully I didn't confuse you. (laughs) So there's the, you should have the distinction in your mind, right? There's a Pentecostal denomination, and then there are Christians who hold to charismatic beliefs. Now, Christians who hold to charismatic beliefs are not limited to people who are in the Pentecostal denomination. That makes sense to you? Okay. You, there are people who hold charismatic beliefs that are Baptists or Catholic or a bunch of other different denominations. So Pentecostalism is, it, is itself a denomination just like uh, Presbyterians are. So when I'm referring to Pentecostalism here, I'm referring to the denomination Pentecostals. Okay. Hopefully that, that, that makes sense to you. Uh, I got to stop. All right, I'll I'll pick this up next week. I'm sorry, I ran out of time. Pastor Rolo been on me about stopping on time. (laughs) So um, we're going to go ahead and pray. Hopefully that wasn't, I didn't put you to sleep. But um, it's good to know what the Lord has done in other parts of the world. We'll get to more next week on this conclusion of Brazil, all right? Lord, we thank you. Father, for showing us what you have done across the globe for your church, O oh Lord. Thank you for helping us to understand in a small way how you have blessed us with brothers and sisters all over the globe, O oh God. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation who would worship you. Lord, help us, God, to do all that we can to pray for them to help them in any way that is possible, Lord, and help us, God, to pray for, pray and support the missionaries that we sent out here from our own church, God, to not forget about the work that they are doing there, and we pray, God, that you would help us to not lose sight of them, to keep them top of mind, oh, Lord, and to um, just continue to pray for them, Lord, and to uh, Help us, God, to be diligent in our help of them and to not forget the sacrifice that they have made on behalf of your church, O oh Lord. We thank you and we bless you in the, Christ, in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.